0: and love. Encourage us in that, we pray. Amen. Well, having finished chapter 3, we have concluded Paul's personal greeting and thanksgiving section to the faith of the, um, thanksgiving section for the Thessalonians' faith. Coming to chapter 4, we arrive at first, Paul's major ethical instruction. There are really only two Passages in First Thessalonians where Paul gives clear ethical instruction. The rest is largely personal and largely doctrinal. But one is here in 4, 1 through 12, and the next is chapter 5, 12 to the end of the uh, letter. In chapter 5, he is dealing with some specific Christian behaviors, and in chapter 4, Paul is thinking big picture how should the Christian live his or her life? Now that the Thessalonians have been reconciled to God, they have been pulled out of that pursuit of idolatry, how are they to live? And Paul says they are to live pleasing God in holiness and in love. And what Paul does here is answer the question many of us will inevitably have when we come to Christ or have that conversion moment. And that is, now that I follow Christ, what do I do? What do I do now? Should I move and change locations? Should I change my job? Should I change my spouse? Should I change my college major? What is there else to do? I've received Christ. I, I understand he's paid for all my sins, but I'm still living on earth here. What and I'm awaiting eternity. What else am I to do? And Paul says, in simple words, walk with God. Walk with God in all that you do. Everywhere you go, please the Lord who reconciled you. To walk with the Lord in holiness and love. This does bring up a... Crisis for most of us, and that is how do I regard myself? What do I think of when I think about myself? What is my purpose in life? What is my identity? Or who do I find my identity in? Prior to Christ, someone says, Who are you? What do you do? You might say, uh, I am a wife and I am a technician or I am a lawyer or I am a mechanic and, and when Paul deals with the Christian life he deals with someone's understanding of who they are in Christ he says you are in Christ you are no longer to regard yourself as your vocation or identify yourself based off your relational status or income now walk with the lord and and here's here's a rough outline of what Paul's doing here he says god has made you to be something be it he has called you as one of his children so walk with him he has called you saints so live holy. He has called you beloved children, so love one another. We should do what we are. God is not demanding of us to do something that he has not already set in our path. As Paul says here twice, do so more and more. You've already been down, you've already started this road. Just keep it up. Just do this more and more. Recognize You are not to identify yourself as some social construct or by your vocation. You are a child of God. And children walk with their father and take on the attributes of their father. I, I don't know if I've given this illustration in here before. I don't know if I'm getting old or just I need to keep better notes, but Um, it's not uncommon for just people who attend AA to struggle with identity. Um, Someone goes to AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and they say, I'm Kyle, and I'm an addict. Or, I'm Kyle, and I'm an alcoholic. Those are horrible words. (laughs) To identify yourself as nothing but The worst of your sins? (laughs) That's an identity crisis for the addict or the alcoholic. But every person, whether they're in AA or somewhere else, might inevitably think, I'm I'm just a single person, or I'm just a divorcee, or I'm just a whoever. And what we have here is when God calls a person to salvation, he gives them a purpose. He gives them identity. Identity. No longer are you regard yourself as what you were. The old has passed away. New things have come. And so as we walk through this passage, no pun intended, uh, we should understand we are walking with the Lord in what he has already designated us to be. We are not proving him to be, proving us to be something to him that he has not already titled us to be. So look first that the Christian is first and foremost someone who walks and pleases, with, pleases God. Someone who walks with God and pleases God. Paul says, We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you receive from us how to walk and please God, that you do so more and more. That's the Christian, someone who, who walks with God, who wants to please God in all that they do. And it must be reiterated I think to everybody here, including the speaker, God takes pleasure in his people. He takes pleasure in his people. And there, there's a pervasive thought that I have to earn God's pleasure or approval every day. Or I got to somehow earn God's delight in me. As if him taking pleasure in reconciling, reconciling us is different than him walking with us or us walking with him. But it is clear from the New Testament alone that God does take pleasure in his people. Philippians 4.18, Paul says, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul says the money he got from Epaphroditus that the Philippians sent is pleasing to God. God cares about that. He's aware of the minutia of our life. Colossians 1.10, Paul prays that the Colossians would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Where is the Lord in your train of thought? Is he is he so distant that he's not in touch at all concerned with your day-to-day affairs? No. He's intimately involved with all of your struggles, issues, moments of joy. Luke 15 makes this point explicitly clear that there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Like a, like a widow who loses a valuable single coin and rejoices over it when she finds it. Or like one sheep who goes astray from the fold, the shepherd goes after the one and rejoices that he found it. And of course, the kicker is really the prodigal son. That God in heaven is delightful that when the prodigal son returns, he's there to welcome him. And I get we don't want to attribute to God a way of which he is pleased that is vacillating and which changes like we change in our delight with one another. But there is a a perfect, I I wouldn't want to say static as if it's uh, boring, but there is a perfect fullness that God always takes in his people. Yes, we do displease him through sin, through disobedience, but what kind of father does not, even when the son disobeys him, still love his child? So the Christian pleases the Lord. And let's go back to this little word, walk. The Christian walks with God. To, to walk in the Bible is to live one's life. It's just a metaphor. Walk means literally walking, of course. But it's used hundreds of times for how one conducts his life, his or her life, the way in which he or she lives. And the the first instance in the Bible where this word walk is used in reference to somebody else, a, a person, is in Genesis 5. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. But Enoch walked with God, hand in hand, side by side, walked with God. There is mystery in the verse, but aside from the mystery, which maybe we'll get into another day, we cannot help but understand here, to walk with God is to walk in communion with God, at peace with God, loyal to him. Later, Noah is described this way. He was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Genesis 6, 9. To to walk and please God is probably a grammatical Term uh, Hendiadys to walk in a manner pleasing to God. To walk is to please God. To please God is to walk with Him. Just take it together. You can't walk with God and not please Him if you're a child. It goes hand in hand. Again, no pun intended. But this is but this is what Paul says. Thessalonians, keep this up. No, he doesn't say walk and please God from like a neutral ground. Like, okay, he saved you kind of reluctantly and now you've got to please him. He says, no, he reconciled you. He was pleased to save you and now continue on this path. And look, just as you are doing, just in case these new believers, these infantile Christian Thessalonians think, I don't know how to walk and please God. What do I do? Do I have to... What parts of the Bible do I need to read? A yearly Bible reading plan? Or how many minutes of prayer do I do a day? It says, just as you're doing. Just as you're doing. You're already doing it. You bear the name of God. Now live it out. It doesn't matter where you live, how much money you make, who you marry. As long as you don't sin, do whatever you want. We'll get more into the will and the purpose of God later. But this is to walk with God. There's a lot of freedom in the Christian life. A lot of freedom. God says, like, just like an earthly father would a, to a child, you can do and pursue anything you want. Just don't go against my father. so no matter where we are in our walk with God today I want you to understand we can do better um, there might be areas of your life that you're quite a, that you're quite aware of and that you're convicted about that you are not walking in peace with God you know it and God knows it and that grieves him and grieves him because you've been given his very spirit his very spirit to walk with him in accordance with him so if there are areas in your walk life with god that are unpleasing displeasing him ask him lord give me more of you in order to live with you rightly Jesus says a profound thing when he teaches about prayer in Luke 11. And this is both, this, this, is, this is almost too good to be true. Speaking of the goodness of God, he says, what father among you, if, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? What, what, what father would do that? Obviously, Jesus is not speaking on behalf of every father on the face of the plant, planet who are faithless and negligent fathers, but generally speaking, a parent loves their child. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. And then Jesus says this, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will the heavenly father give the holy spirit to those who ask him james's words you have not because you ask not are very appropriate here we might not be walking in a manner pleasing to god because we're not asking him But Jesus lays down this promise. How much more will a naturally good dad or mom give good things to their child? How much better or more is it likely that the Heavenly Father would give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? It's a rhetorical question, but it's obvious. Of course, He will. Of course, God will. Nothing, nothing restrains God's love. He would gladly give you his spirit if we recognize and have brought to our attention by the spirit there are places in our life that we could walk better, more faithful, more pleasing to God. And of course, there are many of us on both sides of the application here, there is your life that are going well. Great. Praise be to God as I would say to you as Paul says here excel still more do so more and more pursuing a communal walk with god is never finished that's the essence of heaven it won't be exhausted there and it surely won't be exhausted now so whether we are walking in a manner pleasing to God and we know we're generally doing well, I speak tongue-in-cheek, hopefully, because we're all doing this, you know, even though there's like significant dips, you know. <laughs> but we are called to walk with God and please God. He has called you to be a child of God. Walk with, the, walk with your father. Secondly, the Christian is characterized by holiness. The Christian is characterized by holiness. You see this in verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, or your holiness. Paul's hitting this theme of holiness uh, pretty heavy. In chapter 3, he concludes chapter 3 with this prayer and the prayer says this, uh, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another as, and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his holy ones. And it, I think it got traction last week, so I'll say it again. Jesus rolls with holy people. <laughs> my, my brother had liked that one, so... Uh, that's who Jesus is about, holy people. And he's about turning people who are unholy, holy. And he loves spending time with holy people. And so the will of God is this, your holiness. That's the will of God. That's the purpose for all of us, that we would be holy. Now, I know we read this and we're like, can't do it. (laughs) Can't do it. I'm unholy. Right. There never never will be a time in this life where we are perfectly sanctified. To be perfectly sanctified is to be glorified. But we should take delight in knowing, oh, the Lord has pulled me out of the muck and mire, set my feet firmly on the rock of Christ, and is progressively cleaning the mud off me, and I... And I actually want to help in that regard. I want to cooperate with the spirit in that regard. Not that his effort and my effort are actually ever equal. He's the omniscient all-powerful spirit. But I want to get clean. I want to be holy. And so before I go any further, I just want to say there are there are two aspects of this holiness. There is that moral purity that we would be pure righteous, clean. But there is actually a much more fundamental definition of holiness in the Bible and in here, and that is you're unlike another group. Paul alludes to that in verse 5, that you are not like the Gentiles who do not know God. To be holy is to be set apart from something common. The Christian is not a common person. The Christian is not an ordinary person. The Christian is a distinct, sanctified person. That's got to fill us with joy, with hope that there was no chance I was ever going to be on my own terms and my own power differentiating myself from my old life. We all try to do that. That's my old life. I want nothing to do with it. We'll move out of town, we'll take new names, we'll do anything to disassociate ourselves with the old life. But that will never change. To be really set apart from our old life is to be sanctified in God the Father, where we are named holy children. So he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. He doesn't say, kids, college students, boy, this is this can rack all of our minds, especially you pursuing a college career. What am I supposed to do? What major am I supposed to take? Where am I supposed to go in life? What am I supposed to do in life? Whatever you want. Just be holy. This is the will of God. Your holiness in three ways. That you abstain from, uh, abstain from sexual morality. All kinds of sexual sin. Adultery, fornication, prostitution, and even in the Thessalonians' day, religious prostitution, avoid, abstain from, flee from. Secondly, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So, say, so first, abstain from sexual morality. Second, understand your body is the temple of the Lord. Control it in holiness and honor not like the passion of lust like gentiles who do not know god paul's paul's putting a lot of things against each other here he says sanctification holiness and sexual morality are mutually exclusive they do not come together now they come together in a sense in which we are not completely sanctified and yet we are still sexually immoral but the ideal is holiness and sexual morality or really sin of any sort are antithetical. And another one is holiness is to equate not knowing God. I'm sorry. Sin is to equate not knowing God. He says, control your own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like Gentiles who do not know God. Implicitly saying, you know God. You know better. (laughs) You who know the Holy One, be holy yourselves. And then, thirdly, he says that the will of God, the sanctification, is abstain from sexual immorality, control your body, and don't sin against your brother in sexual immorality. And, and what he's getting to here is um, the Thessalonians lived in a very sexually tolerant culture not unlike ours but one would transgress verse 6 and wrong his brother in this matter by sleeping around being sexually immoral with another family or whoever it might be which is not as Paul says here, a private thing. But it is an impact on the entire Christian community. And then he lays down this hammer in verse 6. The Lord is an avenger of all these things. There's, there's probably maybe at least two meanings of this. One, to sexually sin against someone else Maybe in a way of making someone else a victim, the Lord is an avenger of the victim. But also, the Lord is an avenger in repaying you, your sin. So he lays down the gauntlet here saying... Your sanctification is your pursuit. That is your chief identity marker as you walk and please God. But make no mistake about it. Should you continue in that habit of sexual morality, the Lord will repay you with judgment. And this is not unlike what he told the Corinthians. Sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot live this way and call yourself a child of God. Not at all. And we might say, well, how do I know what's habit and what's not habit? <laughs> how do I know what's, if it's characteristic in my life or if it's not characteristic in my life? Instead of trying to navigate that, I would just say back to three. Abstain sexual morality. <laughs> just flee it altogether. and if your conscience is tender towards, I don't know if the Lord is going to repay on me the sin of my, the punishment of my sin, listen to that conscience. Listen to that conscience and don't sear or harden your heart. Sear that conscience or harden your heart. But here is what really compels Paul to give these commands, even though they are impossible commands to pursue holiness. He says in verse 8, uh, therefore, who, whoever disregards this, disregards, disregards not man but God, he says, Listen, I'm, yeah, I'm giving you instruction, but my instruction is of the Lord, and you're not really going to reject my teaching but God himself. But he goes on and says, this regards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And this is a huge boost to the Thessalonians knowing that they have given, been given the Holy Spirit to carry out their holy lives. John Owen says the Holy Spirit stamps and impresses the seal of the spirit upon the believer the holy spirit is a holy spirit and so when he stamps or seals or impresses his mark upon the believer the believer himself herself is holy and what paul does here and also he'll allude to this in the next verse he's telling the thessalonians that they are new covenant christians They've been given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the, maybe the primary gift in the new covenant. Speaking of the new covenant, Ezekiel 36 says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Could underline or circle that little word, cause. The Holy Spirit, the very power of God, causes our obedience. He empowers us to to, uh, obey Him. It doesn't say, I will put my spirit within you and He might help you out. Good luck. (laughs) No, He says, and these are the words of God. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Without him, it's impossible. Within, with him, there's, there's sanctification. There's obedience. And so he says, you've been given the Holy Spirit. You can grow in holiness. You can pursue sanctification. Holiness doesn't have to be a downer of a word because it's, Impossible um, standards, but actually a joyous pursuit. Because when the Spirit causes us to walk in His ways, we actually delight in that. It's not. A, it's not done reluctantly. If you ever find, ever find yourself asking, "Man, like, man, I, I don't know why I put up with that person," but they don't bug me as much anymore, <laughs> or whatever situation. Hopefully I'm not speaking of myself. But the Holy Spirit causes us to walk in in his statues by us enjoying that very thing. It was not the Thessalonians' obedience alone that would help them win the day. No, God himself would give his spirit. And when God converts a sinner, he also gives the sinner the spirit to further grow in grace. This is, um, I've been reading a little book called, I think, Love to Christ. It's by a guy named Robert Murray McShane. He's um, a Scottish pastor, dead and gone in the 1800s. And he says this, quoting the verse I just mentioned, I will put my spirit within you. Oh, what a miracle of love there is here to the soul that is in Christ. I would not have believed it had the words not been in the Bible. This is more than I have seen or ear heard, more than hath entered into the heart to conceive. If God had said, I will send a good angel to you, the angel that ministered to Jesus in his agony, I will send Michael that stands at my right hand to be your mentor, your counselor, your friend. Oh, this would have been good and gracious. But... He says, I will send you my spirit, the Holy Ghost, the comforter, equal with me, one with me, my spirit. Think on the words, dear Christian, until your hearts glow. McShane is saying, really appropriate this truth that God dwells in you. And he's called you a holy child. He's equipped you to walk holy, not begrudgingly. He's equipped you to walk joyfully in, in holiness. And he, he doesn't even say, I'm going to give you your, my Holy Spirit t- now and then. You might come and go. But I will send my Spirit to live in you, take up residence in you, never part from you, to permanently abide in you. He is with the believer, you, everywhere you go. Had he not been in you, <laughs> life would look a little different. He saves us from so much of our own peril. But this but this is our call to be holy. Lastly, the Christian is called to be loving. The Christian is characterized. By love. Paul has some very high words, high compliments for the Thessalonians in verse 9. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. I want that to be the description of RGC, not only of love, but also of holiness, of joy, evangelism, whatever it may be. Concerning brotherly love, you need no one to teach you, you got it down pat. You're doing well. And he says, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Again, he's actually showing the Thessalonians that they are new covenant Christians because they've been taught by God. Isaiah 53, 13 says, then speaking of the new covenant, all your children will be taught by the Lord, no longer by these crooked charlatan priests, but by the Lord. And Jesus picks up that very verse in John 6 and says, it is written, the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And Jesus is attaching the one who comes to Jesus has been taught by God. You might, how does that happen? Supernaturally? Through the Spirit? Through the Word that works in us? But Paul tells the Thessalonians here, you are so good at loving one another, it is because you've been taught by God himself. And keep this in mind. Your, your reputation is that all around the area that your love for the Macedonians have, has gone forth. But keep this up. Do this more and more. Excel still more, he says, as he did in verse one. So even though they are excelling in love with one another, for one another, keep it up, you know? There's still work to do. When we come to God... let it rest on our hearts that we've been taught by God about love. True, biblical, self-sacrificial, self-denying love. They will all be taught of God. God loves to teach about love. Now, the love of God might be a little, okay, no, no, no. The love of God is very much watered down in some christian circles and so we might want to say oh there's there's more there's more important things to talk about than god's love there's nothing sweeter to talk about than god's love even if it has been abused in the name of mainline liberal denominations, which we kind of learned about in Sunday school. I pray that our pursuit and our love for God's love would be because he's truly teaching us what love is. And look look at how God's love kind of just sweetens all the Thessalonians' interactions. We urge you brothers to do this more and more to aspire to live quietly. Verse 11, mind your own affairs, work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. That's Those are all actions of love. Not dependent on anyone, walking properly, living quietly, mind your own affairs. That's all loving things. Loving, loving things. Love is not just an emotion. It is, of course, an action. And it, and it kind of flows out so that the person who has been poured into with the love of God just kind of pours out the love of God into, into his or her relationships, ministries, whatever it may be. Jonathan Edwards, um, he has a sermon called probably heard this heaven is a world of love everything will be perfect in heaven because everything will be loving true biblical god taught love radiates out it just radiates out to so, to all your interactions, how you speak, how you treat the important person or the not so important person or whatever it may be. It just flows out. You look at Christ's own interactions with people and their, their perfect interactions and, and God, Jesus is perfectly loving. He's, he's perfectly loving when he makes a whip And purifies the temple. He's perfectly loving when he sees a widow coming out of the town of Nain distraught because she also not only lost her husband some years ago, but her only son. He's perfectly loving in all his interactions. And in that way, we should be. But that's because we've been called beloved. Go back to chapter one. He says, we know, brothers, loved by God. There is not, there's not anything in this passage in which God says, I want you to do something I haven't already done in you. Or he's not saying, I want you to do something that is alien to you. He says, you should do what you are. You are a child of God. Walk in him. You are holy, be holy. You are loved by God, love. The minute we divorce the imperatives away from the gospel ground, we get in all types of legalism, self-righteousness. Our only chance to be loving, holy, or pleasing to God is because we have already been titled by God pleasing, holy, and loving. So here is, here is the Christian's purpose. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pursue holiness, and love with an abiding spirit. That is what God has called you to do. That's what God has called me to do. And I pray, as Paul says here for the Thessalonians, it would be true of us, that we have no need for anyone to write to us about these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are enamored with the greatness of your favor towards us. Burn into our hearts and, and, and write into our hearts with fire the truths that we've heard this morning that you have reconciled us out of a life of sin to be taking on your characteristics that we take on your fatherly royal title that we take on your holiness and that we would also take on your love we confess we fail miserably in this but we are thankful that your spirit is so successful in moving us towards loving one another growing in holiness and pleasing you without him we would we would fail but with him with him there is much much hope sanctify our minds our wills our affections to please you in all areas of life. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.